put out your porch light, draw your curtains tight, and get ready for another night of Kentucky Deceased. of Kentucky Deceased. We have had such a fun time working on this podcast that we are definitely going to come back in some way, shape, or form. Most likely, this is going to be to cover the events in 1960s Frankfurt that dealt with the occult and the murder of a young man. As we develop what that will look like, we will let you know more. So please do not dismay that we haven't done anything with that quite yet. However, we do want to say here at the end of this episode that if you have enjoyed this podcast whatsoever, we would love for you to review it on iTunes or on Spotify or to write a note to our Facebook or to our Instagram, Twitter, email, whatever you want to do, and let us know that you've listened, what you liked, what you didn't like. We take these things seriously, and we want to make programming that helps connect us to one another and to the city of Frankfurt. So never hesitate to let us know your thoughts, your hopes, and uh, what you like and don't like. But thank you so much for joining us on this very spooky Halloween journey, as today is the day, the, the dreaded and beloved holiday itself. We ask that you celebrate safely and that you get to enjoy this second very spooky, very creepy, and at times dreadful episode of Kentucky Deceased, Hauntings of Frankfurt. Murder and Mayhem, number nine. During Frankfurt City elections in early 1871, a small riot almost erupted into a race war. The trouble began at the courthouse. In short order, William Newman, a Market Street grocer, Market Street is Broadway today, he was killed. Captain W.G. Thompson was wounded in the arm. And two black men, James Winter and Winston Coleman, sustained serious wounds. Several other participants, both black and white, were slightly injured. Cooler heads prevailed, and a more serious confrontation was avoided. The Singing Bridge has been the scene of many atrocities. Let's go to one that happened in 1894. Around 10 o'clock on the morning of August 14, 1894, following some shopping in Frankfurt, as was her custom, Mrs. Martin Nolan was walking up Devil's Hollow Road, returning to her home behind Buttermer Hill. As she walked up the cool lane through the trees carrying a loaf of bread, she encountered a burly African-American. He asked her if she had any money. And when she replied in the negative, he said he would just have to search her. When she resisted, the man grabbed her and dragged her into the undergrowth. He tore off her clothes and proceeded to rape her. 
When finished, he told her to stay there for half an hour or he would return and kill her. When he fled, Mrs. Nolan started up the hill toward her home and she met a neighbor and told him what had happened. After helping her to her home, the neighbor raced to town for Sheriff Hollis Armstrong. When the sheriff arrived, she gave him a description of the culprit, and the whole town began a door-to-door -door search. Several suspects were arrested, but they soon were released when their alibis cleared them. Near the Frankfurt Coal Company sheds, County Judge Ben Williams and Sam Parent noticed a suspicious-looking character who had hand lacerations. Upon questioning at the courthouse, the man provided witnesses and convinced them he was innocent. The scratches on his hands were from a Saturday night brawl. The suspect, Marshal Boston, in an effort to prove his innocence, agreed to go with the authorities to the victim's home. Well, as soon as she saw him approaching her house, Mrs. Nolan began screaming and accused him of raping her. She also mentioned he had a long tooth. That was the piece of evidence that damned Boston. He was taken to jail, whereupon they discovered he had been arrested eight years before on an attempted rape charge near Maysville and was sent to the Kentucky Penitentiary in Frankfort. By eight o'clock that night, a mob began gathering at the jail. Mayor Ira Julian ordered the police to disperse the crowd. By 11 o'clock that night, a mob of 100 men came up Catfish Alley and down Main Street, arriving at St. Clair, started firing pistols and creating an uproar. Some had blackened their faces, others wore masks. The sheriff deputized an additional dozen guards, but the mob grew larger eventually overcoming the jailer and breaking down the door and seizing the prisoner. By this time, the mob had grown to nearly a thousand, as reported by the Daily Capital newspaper. At 12.15, they hauled the prisoner down to the singing bridge. Boston, meanwhile, frantically confessed and prayed for, forgive, for forgiveness, but there was none. He was immediately hung from the middle of the top of the bridge and his body was riddled with over 200 bullets. Swarms of lightning bugs were seen gathering around the bloody body. As soon as the mob dispersed, Police Chief Tobin cut down the body, took it to the grand jury courtroom. The results of the coroner's inquest said that people unknown hanged Marshal Boston, and therefore no one was prosecuted. Murder and mayhem number 11, again at the St. Clair Bridge. During a traveling entertainment show with rides and exhibits that appeared in Frankfurt early June of 1909, John Maxey, an African-American, shot and dangerously wounded Burt Bowers, who was somehow connected with the show too. At 2 a.m. the next morning, June 3rd, 1909, Maxey was taken from jail and hanged on the St. Clair Street Bridge. After the hanging, a celebration was held. And during the promiscuous shooting following, young R.J. Wando was dangerously but not fatally wounded. No prosecutions resulted from this encounter.
Now we move around to Main Street. Some of you folks remember Burr's Hotel. It was there between Lewis Street and Ann Street on Main. You had the Capitol Movie Theater, and you had Burr's Hotel, and some of you remember the State Movie Theater. It was there on the corner. That's where we're going with this one. On the night of September 10th, 1882, violence erupted in front of Burr's Hotel on Main Street in downtown Frankfurt, resulting in the death of Jerry Lee, chief of the city's night police. Just after 11.30, Policeman Lee was sitting in front of Major Hall. That's the site of the one-time Capitol Theater, located on Main Street. Built in 1868, the hall was named in honor of former Mayor S.I.M. Major and would be destroyed by fire almost to the day a month later, on November 11th. Sitting in front of the Burr Hotel next door, was Stephen Scarce. Unbeknownst to either sitter, Frank Egbert, who we talked about in one of the earlier murders, with carbine in hand, stealthily approached from the corner of Lewis and Main Street. As he neared Scarce, he drew his weapon, attempting to fire, but the gun jammed. By this time, Scarce moved to Egbert and took the rifle from him. Meanwhile, the would-be assailant drew a pistol during the scuffle. Officer Jerry Lee ran from his position in front of Major Hall and was shot in the left side by Egbert. The bullet hit just above the hip, perforating his small intestine and lacerating the lower portion of his kidney, exiting through his back. Scarce pulled out his pistol and fired twice, missing each time. Egbert got off another shot, hitting Scarce's gun in his right finger. More shots were fired. Scarce and Egbert had been at each other several weeks previously, but there was also bad blood between Officer Lee and Egbert. Perhaps the original bullet was meant for Scarce and not for Lee. Egbert left the scene, fleeing north down Lewis Street. The first trial resulted in a hung jury. The second returned a verdict of not guilty. On up the street, right actually outside our building here today, place murder number 13. On June 13, 1874, Jim Kelly murdered George Hitzelberger. He was a blacksmith. Jim and Dave Kelly and John Graham went to his residence and called him out. While John Graham and Dave Kelly held him, Jim Kelly inflicted five or six wounds with a knife. John Graham had stolen Jim Kelly's saddle and charged the theft to Hitzelberger, the outcome of which, of course, was the killing. John Graham and Dave Kelly were arrested, but Jim Kelly made his escape and was never heard of again. George W. Hitzelberger came to Frankfurt during the Civil War with the 21st Maryland Infantry. Following the war, he married a girl from Shelby County and settled in Frankfurt and became a partner with James Henderson in a blacksmithing business located on Main Street, just above High Street. The couple lived at Mrs. Hearn's boarding house near Nelson Alley's livery stable. All this is on Main Street. On June 13, 1874, local rowdies John Graham, Jim, and Dave Kelly rode into town from the Glens Creek area. Graham was riding a horse he had earlier stolen. Dave put his horse up at Alley's livery stable across from the Capitol Hotel 
while Jim and John took their horses up to Henderson's blacksmith shop for shoeing. Hitzelberger said he would have the horses ready at closing time. The boys spent their waiting time in a nearby saloon, drinking heavily. Graham, unnoticed by his cronies, slipped away and stole Jim's saddle at Allie's livery stable, hiding it at a nearby friend's house just up above the arsenal. He then returns back to the saloon. Around 7 p.m., Hitzelberger, having finished the horseshoeing job, dropped by the saloon to pick up his money. He told them since he had closed and was going to go home, he just left the horses in front of the shop. Well, after the boys finished at the saloon, they went to pick up their horses, only to find that Jim's saddle was missing. Immediately, Jim placed the blame on the blacksmith, and they rushed over to Mrs. Hearn's boarding house where he lived. They called George to come downstairs, and when he had done so, they accused him of the theft. George denied knowing anything about it, and Jim said he would hold the blacksmith accountable. George made some sort of tart reply, resulting in John and Dave grabbing him while Jim pulled a knife, inflicting five or six wounds, one of which plunged deep into his heart, another slashed his face, while the rest spilled out his entrails. The killers fled. Responding to George's screams, fellow boarders carried him upstairs to his room and summoned Dr. Price. George died about 20 minutes after the stabbing. John Graham and Dave Kelly was arrested for the murder of George W. Hitzelberger, while the killer, Jim Kelly, fled and was never heard from again. Our next series of murders take place at the old Capitol Hotel. It's where the State National Bank building today is located. Our first deals with an event that happened in 1879. On the steps to the Ann Street side entrance of the famous Old Capitol Hotel, at about one o'clock in the afternoon of March 26, 1879, Colonel Thomas Buford of Henry County murdered appellate court judge John Milton Elliott. The weapon used was a double-barrel shotgun loaded with 12-gauge buckshot in each barrel. Elliott was unarmed. Buford belonged to the distinguished Buford family of Woodford County. He was born at Woodburn and was the brother of General A. Buford. The assassination arose out of an appellate court decision which left Buford virtually penniless. Some years previous, Buford had invested his entire fortune together with the whole estate of his sister Mary in a tract of land over in Henry County. The dispute that arose out of this land deal wound up with Buford's losing $20,000, the land as well, and his sister was believed to have died over the matter. Buford apparently lost his sanity too, killing Judge Elliott, who had presided against him. He also wanted to kill Judge W.S. Pryor, but he thought of the judge's children and let him off on that account. He also threatened the life of General Daniel W. Lindsay, who as special judge had decided the case against him in circuit court. Buford was moved to Louisville to prevent a mob from hanging him. Judge Elliott, in company with Judge Thomas M. Hines of the Court of Appeals, was coming up Ann Street from the courtroom at the old Capitol when Buford met them at the steps of the side entrance to the hotel. Buford spoke to Judge Elliott and said, Judge, I believe I'll go snipe hunting. Won't you go along? 
No, replied the judge. Well then, said Buford, won't you go along and take a drink? At this point, Judge Hines turned away and had gone about six feet when the gun was fired and Judge Elliott fell upon the sidewalk without uttering a word. Buford looked down upon him and said, I'm sorry. He then lifted his head and put Buford's hat under it. Judge Hines turned back and tried to raise the body, but it was no use. The judge thought it was an accident until Buford spoke to the deputy sheriff and a policeman who came up immediately. Buford, after kissing his gun, gave it to the policeman and said, Be careful with that gun. I put 12 buckshot in it for prior. The authorities also found a pistol in Buford's pocket. Buford said he had intended to use it if the shotgun failed. He was arrested and committed to jail. The body of Judge Elliott was taken to a room in the hotel. There was great excitement throughout the city of Frankfurt when they learned of the murder. Business was at a standstill. Persistent talk of a mob caused the sheriff to summon a large posse to guard the jail. Even the military was alerted to potential danger. Governor James B. McCrary requested all businesses and public offices be closed and that all state officers and their clerks attend the funeral at First Christian Church. After several changes of venues and many, many months, the jury finally met in Owenton in January of 1881, nearly two years after the crime. Buford claimed insanity as his defense. The jury agreed, and the court ordered him committed to the Asylum for the Insane at Anchorage, Kentucky. After a brief confinement, however, Buford escaped into Indiana. And since the Hoosier governor refused extradition, Buford literally became a free man. Number 15. We're about winding it down. This one happened inside the lobby of the Capitol Hotel. And this one is very intricate because we had a lot of witnesses. There were over 50 people in the room. Now, I'm not going to give you 50 versions of what they said, but we'll share this information. By the way, there's a mistake in the spelling of the killer. It's not Colston, it's just Colson, C-O-L-S-O-N. So correct that. Colonel David Colson of Middlesbrough and Lieutenant Ethelbert D. Scott of Somerset met in the lobby of the Capitol Hotel January 16th, or it might have been January the 18th. The newspapers have conflicting dates. The year was 1900, though, and the pistol fight which ensued resulted in the deaths of Lieutenant Scott, Charles Julian, a wealthy Bridgeport farmer, and Luther W. Demery, a young lawyer from Shelby County. Lieutenant Scott was shot seven times. Colonel Colson was wounded in the arm. Also wounded were Harry McEwen of Louisville and Captain Ben Golden of Barbersville, Mr. C.D. Redpath of Chicago, a traveling salesman, was seated in the lobby of the hotel near the railing that protected the entrance to the basement, having his shoes shine. When the shooting commenced, he jumped over the railing, fell to the bottom of the steps, and broke his leg. Colonel Colson and Lieutenant Scott were both Army officers and Republican politicians. The quarrel between them originated 
during an encampment of the army at Anniston, Alabama during the Spanish-American War. Each was an officer in the 4th Kentucky Regiment. They had a fight that resulted with Scott wounding Colson. Well, at the time of the shooting here in Frankfort, an exciting contest for governor was being waged by the Democrats and Republicans. We talked about it earlier. The Republican won, Mr. Taylor, and our friend Goebel got shot. Then he becomes governor, and you know the story. Well, strangers from all parts of the state were congregated here in Frankfort, and at the time of the shooting, the lobby of the hotel was very crowded. Groups of men were standing in the large room. Others were seated and leaning against the walls, and others were lounging in the easy chairs around the columns in the rotunda. Members of the legislature, state officials, and politicians had congregated there after the adjourned session of the legislature. Colonel Colson was seated in the front part of the lobby, leaning against the wall, and engaged in conversation with some friends. When Lieutenant Scott came through the right-hand door, leading from the dining room to the lobby, they both seemed to have noticed each other and began preparing for what became the shootout. The question as to which one of them fired the first shot has never been settled. They fired 18 shots in less than a minute, 13 of which lodged in bystanders, resulting in the death of three men and wounding four others. One shot went through the large glass window in front, one struck the wall near the window, one went near the head of Richard Paxton, who was talking to Charles Julian. Another struck the letter case in the hotel office. Colston and Scott had met the day before in Frankfurt on the sidewalk near the hotel. Colson gave Scott a defiant stare. Each of them claimed the other was stalking him. Here's what witnesses shared about this account. Kit Chin was standing near the cigar counter around 12.30 when Scott and Golden came in the hotel and stopped at the counter. Scott asked Chin to go down in the basement to the bar and have a drink. He declined, but Scott insisted. When they reached the center of the lobby, Chin stopped and told him to go on, and he'd join him later. J.C.C. Mayo, the election commissioner, was sitting beside Colson, facing the entrance of the dining room when Scott, Golden, and Chin came in. All of a sudden, Mayo saw an unusual expression on Colson's face. Colson arose from his chair and drew a long revolver, a 44 caliber Colt, and started firing. No one knew who shot first. Colson steadied his pistol with his left hand and after firing several times, circled around to put himself in the center of the lobby. Captain Golden ran toward the hall door and when he was about halfway across the lobby, a bullet struck him in the small of his back. Scott moved behind Demery, who fell to the floor. Apparently, Scott and Colson saw each other about the same time and opened fire. Out of 50 men present in the room, no one seemed to know who shot first. Colson emptied two revolvers, and Scott emptied one. When Colson's first gun emptied, he very coolly, deliberately laid it in one of the long leather office chairs and then drew a 38 Smith & Wesson advancing on Scott, whose gun by now was empty. When Scott went behind Demery, he held him in front of him for protection, 
so that three of Colson's bullets pierced Demery's heart in quick succession. One of the bullets passed through Demery's heart and his entire body, going through Scott's clothes, lodging against his chest. At the post-mortem examination of Scott, this bullet was found in the skin, but it wasn't deep enough to hide it. Julian was shot in the calf of his leg, severing an artery, and in 20 minutes, he was dead. Colson had been wounded in the left arm while laying the 44 on the chair. When he drew the 38, Scott ran across the lobby to the opposite corner, attempting to escape down the stairs to the basement. Colson following him across the lobby with his fresh pistol and fired the first shot from his 38 just as Scott reached the first step of the stairs. The bullet struck him in the back of the head. By then, he had already been hit in the front of his neck and twice in the abdomen. The bullet in the back of his head sent him head first down the stairs, landing on top of C.D. Redpath, who had jumped over the banister and broken his leg in an effort to get out of the range of the bullets. Colson looked over the balustrade and fired another shot. He had fired two shots into Scott's back as he fell down the stairs and then followed down the stairs and fired one more shot into Scott's body after he had fallen across Redpath. Colson then stepped over the bodies of the two men, went out through the basement door which opened on the east side of the building, and went up the street with the empty pistol in his hand. When he reached Mrs. M.H.P. Williams' boarding house, located about a block from the hotel, he went to the room of a mountain friend and borrowed a pistol from him. He then went to the room of another friend and had him send for the doctor. Soon, Dr. Erskine Hume arrived and extracted the bullet, which had badly shattered the bone near the elbow of the left arm. In a short time, the chief of police arrived and placed him under arrest, and he was taken to the county jail, confined on a charge of murder without bail. The Franklin County Grand Jury promptly returned three indictments against him for murder, killing Scott, Julian, and Demery. He was also indicted twice for carrying concealed deadly weapons. At the trial, Colson claimed that Scott brought on the trouble by following him and by starting the fight. The jury found him not guilty. Number 16. While the Election Day riots, Ku Klux Klan abuses, and similar incidents demonstrate that race was a major factor in the violence which swept over Franklin County, we also may have spawned a serial killer. In many cases over the years, murders were never solved and the causes never determined. One of the most mysterious incidents involved the assassination of a butcher named Ben Farmer at his home near Farmdale on the evening of March 5, 1870. At the time, Farmer was asleep on a sofa, his head near a window that opened onto a porch. With him were friends, Thomas J. Mayhall and William Wright. When a shot rang out, the two men rushed to the door to see who had fired, but they didn't see anybody. Returning to the room, they attempted to awaken Farmer, only to find him dead from a head wound. Authorities arrested Charles Holmes on suspicion of murder, but released him when the evidence against him failed to hold up. Sometime later, William Hawkins and Charles Polk were arrested for the crime, but only Hawkins was indicted. 
and the jury acquitted him. Farmer's assassination was still unsolved six years later when Martin Van Buren South, also a butcher, was murdered at the market house in Frankfurt. As time passed, the impression deepened that the man who planned and possibly who carried into execution the killing of South also had something to do with the murder of Farmer. The tragedies were so much alike that the authorities thought it possible the same party had planned both of them, but we'll never know. Martin Van Buren South was born in 1837 near Jackson, down in Breathitt County. He was the son of Colonel Jeremiah W. South, who was keeper of the penitentiary here in Frankfort. During the Civil War, Martin enlisted as a Confederate private in the 5th Kentucky Regiment under Colonel A.J. May. He served until the end of the war. Following the war, he settled in Woodford County and lived near Versailles until he moved to the Forks of Elkhorn in 1870. He married Sophronia Hockensmith, and they had three children. He was a butcher in the firm of South and Farmer. On the morning of April 1st, 1876, many discredited the report of the assassination of Martin Van Buren South owing to the date, April Fool's Day. South and Farmer Butchery regularly transacted their business in a store on St. Clair Street. They also had a stall in the market house near the depot at Ann and Broadway where they sold meats. On the fatal morning in question, South came to work around 4.30 in the morning after spending the night at his father's house at the Forks of Elkhorn. He took his usual place in the stall near the middle of the market house on Broadway, street side of the building. He made a few sales and was waiting on a customer, figuring up the total with his pencil, when all of a sudden he was shot in the chest. The ball entered just to the right of and a little above the sternum, passing through the fleshy part of the breast and through the arm just below the shoulder severing the main artery. Then the ball passed through a dressed chicken hanging behind him, struck the brick wall, rebounded again back into the chicken. South staggered to the end of his workbench, moved back to the point where he was shot, and then sunk gradually against the wall. Several bystanders, including two policemen, were unable to tell where the shot came from. The victim asked for his wife and for Dr. Duvall, whose residence was nearby. 20 minutes following the fatal shot, Martin Van Buren South bled to death. Upon examination, it was discovered that the assassin had fired the shot from an aperture on the opposite side of the market house. The north side of the market house was directly on the sidewalk leading from Ann Street to the depot, and on the south side was an open lot that accommodated market wagons between the depot and the market house. You see where we're at? It's the parking lot, the Farmer's Bank, over there across from the Historical Society and the History Center. Well, from the lot, a gate opened onto an alley, that's Olive Street today, that ran from the east end of the Capitol Hotel to the west end of the depot. This side of the market house was slatted up with three-inch vertical slats, much like a picket fence. Laterally, it was boarded up with six-inch poplar planks placed horizontally and fitting closely so that it was difficult to even find a space large enough to see into the market house. But upon inspection, it was found that just opposite the stall of South and Farmer, 
a piece of the outer planking 18 inches long and 3 inches wide had been torn off about 5 feet from the ground, which afforded several portholes from which the weapon was evidently fired. One witness reported that just before the shot was fired, a horse was seen standing in the alley near the gate. Another said they saw a horseman riding rapidly down Clinton Street behind the State House. Others came forward who had heard or seen him passing swiftly towards and across the railroad bridge, crossing the river at the foot of Broadway. Tom South, the victim's brother, noted the track of the horse in the alley, and he followed the route indicated by the witnesses across the bridge, along the river by today's Taylor Avenue to Devil's Hollow Road. The tracks of the horse led to a stable on the premises of Walker Stevens, about two miles from the city, on the old Shelbyville Turnpike. No horse was found that matched the tracks, but they did learn that Stevens had just ridden off to town. The search party returned to town and eventually found the horse at William Stable in South Frankfort. Warrants were issued for Walker Stevens, Robert G. Shields, his brother-in-law, and Thomas Holder, his son-in-law, who resided on the premises with him. Upon later examination of the stable, Officer Jerry Lee, Remember him? We talked about him. Officer Jerry Lee discovered under the hay a recently fired carbine. Stevens later secured a change of venue and was tried in Henry County where he was acquitted. To this day, they don't know who killed Martin Van Buren South. But just recently, having nothing to do with this story, but Martin Van Buren South has gotten his Confederate monument. It should be up in the Frankfurt Cemetery, I guess, now. I saw it in the back of a truck a week or so ago. It's been a long time coming, but he's got it. In late January of 1868, an African-American, Jim Macklin, allegedly assaulted a 15-year-old girl, an Irish girl, threw her body down the hill behind the arsenal near the railroad tunnel. Not the side of the railroad tunnel that you see from High Street or Broadway, but the side of the railroad tunnel behind the arsenal on the other side, which we don't see. The girl was on her way home around 4.30, walking on the pathway that led to the cemetery. Remember, there used to be a road on that area. She was about 30 yards from the tunnel, as she was thrown from the cliff by Macklin, she was caught by a bush, and she tried to hold on to it. But Macklin raised a large stone, threw it at her, and struck her. She fell 25 feet to the tracks below. Her shoulder blade was broken. She had a skull fracture. On the evening of January 30th, around 8 o'clock at night, a mob composed largely of Irishmen broke into the jail and attempted to remove Macklin. In an effort to prevent a lynching, the Commonwealth's attorney sought the assistance of Reverend Lambert Young, who was the pastor of the Church of the Good Shepherd. Father Young rushed immediately to the jail and pleaded with his angry parishioners to cease their barbarous behavior. However, it was for naught. The mob dragged Macklin to the site of the crime and hanged him. Under civil rights statutes in force at the time, the U.S. District Court had jurisdiction over the case. Shortly after the lynching, U.S. Marshals arrested 13 of Frankfurt's most substantial citizens, most of whom were Irish, for their alleged 
participation in the hanging. Those charged were Michael Parker, John Owens, James Welch, Edward Cummins, Michael Buckley, Pat Sullivan, Mike and Dan Callahan, Pat and Thomas Newman, Dennis Griffin, Ed Burns, and Mr. L. Period Tobin. The suspects were taken to Louisville where they were to be examined by a federal grand jury. The attorneys in the case included some of Franklin County's best legal minds. Representing the government was Colonel John Mason Brown, a grandson of Senator John Brown of Liberty Hall, while Judge George Washington Craddock, Judge Patrick U. Major, and D.W. Carpenter represented the defendants. On the motion of Colonel Brown, Mr. L. Period Tobin was discharged, there being no evidence to implicate him. After a full hearing, all of the defendants were discharged, with the exception of Mike and Dan Callahan, Jim Welch, Edward Cummins, and Michael Parker. One of the prosecution's major witnesses was Father Young, who was asked to identify those persons whom he saw in the mob that took Macklin from jail. When called to the stand, however, the priest refused to testify. His decision did not stem from any lack of courage or disrespect for the law or sympathy for mob violence. Rather, it was a matter of preserving the trust in his priestly office and preventing its abuse by civil authority, which prompted his stance. Father Young's decision of conscience won him widespread applause and a jail sentence for contempt of court from an irate judge. After three days in the Jefferson County Jail, the priest became ill and was transferred to St. Joseph Infirmary, where he remained for three weeks, still under court jurisdiction. Upon his discharge from the hospital, Father Young was released on $2,000 bail, but the contempt charge was allowed to lapse. Unfortunately, it appears that the same thing happened with the remaining defendants in the Macklin case who also had been released on bail. Nobody charged. Number 18, you all have been so patient sitting these out. In early August of 1871, a black man named Henry Johnson was accused of raping a German woman named Mrs. Pfeiffer. Arrested and jailed, he was still in confinement on August 7th, state election day. The balloting itself proceeded in an atmosphere of relative calm. About 4 p.m., however, tensions began to rise as a crowd of drunks, both black and white, gathered near the market house, which was down between the train depot and the corner of Ann and Broadway. At first, the disturbance consisted mainly of shouting, cursing, hat-waving. As the evening wore on, the crowd grew in numbers several pistols appeared. Sensing that a major riot was brewing, a bystander suggested to the police that they arrest the drunks who appeared to be provoking the disturbance. However, the Gentiles responded that they could not make any arrests until an actual conflict erupted. They didn't have long to wait. Shortly after the polls closed, the train from Louisville pulled into the depot immediately east of the market house. A passenger standing on the platform of the rear car later noted that he saw a crowd of white men and boys pursuing a group of blacks near the train. Retreating at first, the blacks finally stood their ground and an exchange of rocks and stones followed. 
Suddenly, a young white man pulled a revolver and aimed it at an African-American. The witness saw the gunman pull the trigger, but the weapon misfired. Seconds later, a shot rang out from the white crowd. It was never determined who fired the shot, but it set off a hail of indiscriminate shooting by blacks and whites alike. Moments later, the blacks stampeded with the whites close behind. When the crowd dispersed, the extent of the mayhem became clear. Dead were William Gilmore, a white bystander who was a clerk in the state auditor's office, and Silas N. Bishop. Among those wounded were two police officers, Jerry Lee and Richard Leonard, and several blacks, including Henry Washington, who was taken to jail. In an effort to restore peace, Mayor Edmund H. Taylor, Jr. called out the militia. For several hours, troops patrolled the streets and stood guard at the courthouse and the jail. As midnight approached, however, the troops began to disperse and return to their homes. Mayor Taylor stated his determination to protect the jailed prisoners and appealed for the militia's assistance. Several militiamen remained for a while to guard the jail. Soon this force began to dwindle as well. Sometime after midnight, the mayor reluctantly dismissed the remaining militia. Learning that the guard had disappeared, the white mob quickly reassembled. They demanded and received the keys to the jail, removed Henry Johnson and Henry Washington from their cells, and took them to South Frankfort, where they hanged both men from a tree near Second Street School. A short time later, three men, James Alley, Richard Crittenden, and D. Howard Smith, Jr., the son of the state auditor, were arrested and charged in relation to the lynching. All three were tried in the federal court in Louisville, but none were convicted. Number 19. Thomas Scroggins and a black man named Strother Trumbo had a difficulty near the train tunnel that resulted in the murder of Trumbo. At that time, the United States District Court had jurisdiction to try the case in which a white man killed an African-American. Scroggins was arrested and committed to jail without bail. On February 27th, an armed band estimated at 150 men broke into the jail. Scroggins was taken from jail and released. He had been a rebel soldier, and it was supposed that they had something to do with his release. Scroggins remained out of the county for several years, and in the meantime, he became an office holder in another county. After an absence of about 40 years, he visited Frankfurt and was requested to tell about his release. He said it was about midnight when somebody took him roughly by the arm and said, get up from there, we want you. Some 15 or 20 men were in the jail. They did not permit him to put on any clothes except his nightshirt. He thought at the time it meant death at the end of a rope. He was carried across the St. Clair Street Bridge and down near the city school where a large number of men were congregated. They gave him a new suit of clothes, $100, a good horse, saddle and bridle, and some good advice, all of which he appreciated. It took him a very short time to get out of the county. Number 20, you know where Gibby's is? That's the scene of this final murder. Officer Henry Brown was shot and killed in Mrs. Kagan's saloon by a drunken and disorderly Lucian Hawkins from Shelby County. Because of Hawkins' behavior, Ms. Kagan called for the police. When the police attempted to arrest him, he pulled a pistol and shot the 64-year-old Captain Brown five times. 
accompanying Officer Will Gordon, in turn, fired three times into Hawkins. Both men died within two minutes after the shooting. Brown had been on Frankfurt's police force for 38 years. He was buried in the Frankfurt Cemetery. And that is our murder and mayhem in our own town. Thank you. It's all in the newspapers. And you know, sometimes the newspapers get it wrong. The story that we studied from the Kentucky Yeoman about the soldiers over in Craw shooting up Hauser's Saloon was entirely different from the story that was in the Louisville Courier Journal. The Frankfurt newspapers said the soldier was unarmed and never fired a shot. Courier Journal had all this information about witnesses who actually saw both men shooting at each other. So with all of these stories, we have to take a grain of salt because what we're basing it on is somebody's comments, somebody's words. Somewhere within lies the truth. Thank you very much, Russ. And, and your, your book, on, on the Walking Tour, focuses on some of the lighter side of Frankfurt, not just the murder in the main. <laughs> right, right. Frankfurt does have some positive stories to tell. Um, and, and how can people get the book? Uh, this card right here has all the information. Gene Birch, who did the photography, has a website that you can go to, or there's a phone number on the back that you can call, and it will put you on the ordered list. And after that, we'll get in touch with you later, and you can get a book. Save five dollars. And this is a collector's item. Uh, I guess so. Thank you. Well, thank you all very much for coming out tonight, and uh, we'll see you next time. <sighs> Okay, the trial is over, folks. What do you think? Is this worth... Thank you, thank you, thank you for riding out this journey with us. We are so grateful to have shared these pieces of Frankfurt history with you. If this has been of interest to you whatsoever, then we recommend coming down to the Capital City Museum to say hi and a hello and to take a look around. We were closed in all of 2020 for a huge scale renovation of the building, the content, and all of our exhibits. And we're so happy that we get to share it with everybody today. So please, if you've got time, come on down and let us know you've listened to the podcast. It would make our days exponentially better. Here on this last episode, I want to give a few very specific and very special thanks. The first is to Penelope Peevler for her hard work and dedication in helping to get the museum to its current state of wonderfulness and amazing displays. So thank you, Penny, for everything that you have done. We also want to make sure we thank Beth Shields, our city historian, for her wonderful interest and dedication and help getting content for these series of episodes. 
Thank you so much to the Capital City Museum staff, Rebecca Tippett, our collections manager, Karen Hatter, Patty Peevler, Ashley Morris, Sally McNichols, and Ramona Newman for your wonderful and amazing hard work here at the museum. Also, giant, giant, giant thank yous to everybody who's been involved in this podcast. Joe Carter, Julia Gabbard, Jared Deaton, Cece Russell Kennedy, and Russell Hatter. And last but certainly not least, Kelly Emmerman for giving me feedback and pushback to ideas both great and wonderful. So thank you so much, Kelly, for everything that you have done. We really hope you have enjoyed this journey, and I want to just give one last little farewell. My name is Eleanor Haskin-Wagner, and I'm the Museum and Historic Site Supervisor for the City of Frankfurt, and it's been great to share this Halloween season with you. Stay spooky, stay scary, but most of all, stay Kentucky deceased. <laughs>